Hiring? With Indeed, your search is over. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot goes well with both red and white and is perfect with a workout of your choice. Our co-hosts are on both coasts and they have all of NBA Nation covered. Adam Stanko in the Bay Area and Noah Kozlov in the Big Apple. Catch and Shoot podcast this week, Noah Kozlov, Adam Stanko, and, and we went really long with Brad Doherty the number one overall pick in the 86 draft. So Adam and I had a whole bunch of stuff already recorded for the opening close. But since we went really long with Brad Darty, we thought, why make y'all sit through that? It was gold, but we'll save it because it's, Oh, it's, it's evergreen, but it was, it was great stuff. Great, great material. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, just picture whatever it is, as, as you're driving or working out or however you're listening to this, just, just, just think about some of the best stuff you could have ever heard in your life, and you're going to miss out on that, but you're still going to hear some some amazing stuff. from Right, and, from then, and then you'll get that great stuff down the road. But I want to make sure that everybody is subscribing and downloading the Mike Wise show. If you heard the Rick Carlisle interview, also all the work that the production team did, getting a bunch of guys talking about their first rivalries, a bunch of NBA All-Stars, also Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt and the Pure Hoops podcast with – NBA champion BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. But let's not waste any time. Let's go to Brad Doherty. We're joined now by Brad Doherty, the five-time All-Star, the third-team All-NBA selection back in 92. He was the first overall pick of the Cavaliers back in 1986. His number 43 is retired after spending eight years in the league, 19 points, nine and a half boards, nearly four assists. He retired as the Cavs' all-time leading scorer and rebounder, the first 20 and 10 guy in Cavs history and Brad I want to start with 1989 you ever get Bill Lambeer back for punching you in the face <laughs> <laughs> no I, I didn't I, I'm waiting to see him one day when, so I can get him back uh, he did I he ended up uh, I ended up hitting his fist with my face after Isaiah jumped on my back so I never got a chance to get him back so I owe him one <laughs> have you guys ever spoken about it no 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 I mean you know you play and and you have you know incidents with guys, and you don't actually you don't even think about it. I, I, I I've had a couple tips with guys over the years playing basketball, and you know when you see them or talk to them, you never even think about that. You think about you know your teams versus their teams and things like that. But incidents that you have with guys, there's there's quite a few you just don't you don't recall them. Was there, was, was there someone that you always wanted to get and then never got? No, no. You just always go out and and play. You know, I never thought about playing against individuals when I played. I always tried to – it was always about what my team was doing. I never thought of it. If I was playing against, you know, 
Michael Jordan or Kareem or Elijah Wan. I knew what my job was, but my, when I played basketball, I always thought about what you know my team was doing and what we were trying to accomplish. I never thought about you know an individual player or someone or the the, the build up or the hype or any of that type of stuff. That that didn't matter. You, you always try. You had to execute, uh, especially in pro basketball, and and that was always about how your team was playing and what they were trying to accomplish. But you started worrying about trying to get back at Patrick Ewing or get back at whomever, it would take, totally going to take you away from what you're trying to accomplish as a team. And that's uh, that's kind of what, you know, sometimes guys would want to accomplish. So never, never thought about that. Never thought about another player when I was playing. Speaking of other players, I, I want to go back to the 1986 draft, which has crazy implications, not just for the Cleveland Cavaliers, but obviously the Boston Celtics. But even before we hit that, Prior to the draft, the story goes that Red Auerbach was holding uh, basically scrimmages at his camp with Len Bias, yourself, Larry Bird would come and play. Can can you tell us what, what that experience was like and what those games looked like? Yeah, uh, it never happened. Uh, I never went to Boston and played in a scrimmage with Larry Bird or Len Bias. That's just... Uh, that's a story that one of those stories that, that someone made up and has grown <laughs> over the years. Because Larry Bird said that, that he had played in those scrimmages with Len Bias and with you. That's interesting. It was Larry Bird who said that. No, no, never played in those. Wow. Never played uh, in the scrimmage. I played with Len. I knew Len real well. And uh, we played pickup in the summertime a little bit. Uh, but I never played pickup with Larry Bird. And uh, never played pickup with Len Bias with Larry Bird, so never happened. For people who haven't seen Len Bias, uh, this generation that 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 didn't get a chance to grow up watching him and and what he meant, can you explain what type of player he was and what he looked like on on the court and his impact? Yeah, yeah. Len was, uh, you know, Len was six uh, eight, right, two hundred and twenty five pounds, really. Just an incredible athlete. Uh, uh, had great bounce. Um, you know, it was really interesting playing against Lynn. I remember one night in Chapel Hill, man, he lit us up. And you know, he was he could really shoot the basketball. And he's the only guy, I remember Johnny Dawkins I talked about this one time, you know, he would, when he would shoot his shot, he would elevate to the maximum height on his jump shot. You know, I mean, he, he had an incredible vertical, but he would go straight up, kind of like David Thompson. I don't know if many people remember <laughs> David right. Thompson. Uh, those guys, they always got the maximum, you know, they, they maxed the vertical out on their jump shot. So he was, I remember we, we started out and we, you know, he played, he played small forward and he was just incredible. And, uh, we were rotating people trying to guard him. He was just, we couldn't stop him. And finally coach Smith with my college coach said, Hey, you, you got to give it a shot. So I tried to guard him for about five minutes there. And it was, it was difficult. Uh, tremendous jump shooter, mid range. And around the basket, uh, had such incredible leaping ability, could finish around the basket. Uh, just incredible, just just incredible athlete. Um, and really uh, one of, you know, the, when you look at players throughout ACC history, I think it comes down, you know, to the two guys that teams probably had the most trouble. And I heard Coach Krzyzewski talk about this in game planning was was for Michael Jordan and, and Lynn Bias. So, uh, uh, just, just tragic, uh, 
the, the, the what happened to him and how it all unfolded. It would have been interesting to see how his game would have translated uh, to the NBA game because it's a little, you know, it's a little freer game. Uh, and I think he'd have been just remarkable as a as an NBA pro. But uh, a lot of fun to play against him because he was so talented and uh, really a heck of a guy. And uh, man, he could he could score the basketball like just like no other. He could absolutely shoot it from. I'm telling you, his mid-range game was spectacular, and he had depth, and around the basket was just explosive. So, uh, yeah, really, really unfortunate. Yeah, I want to take the, those few days chronologically. So let's go back before we get to Len Bias's passing. The day before the draft, the Sixers trade the number one pick for Roy Hinson to the Cavaliers. Now, mm-hmm. what were you hearing in the days leading up to that from any number of teams and your status as where you might get picked in the draft and then take us into when you found out that that deal went down. Yeah. So uh, what happened with, with that, you know, I had gone and visited a couple teams and uh, you know, I thought that I possibly would go to Boston. Um, you know, we had great talks and everything was really, kind of set I'd possibly go to Boston and that was, I was pretty excited about that and then I ended up going my last visit with the team was with Philadelphia and I went into Philly and uh, met with uh, uh, Pat Croce who was their trainer at the time which you know ended up on the basketball team eventually mm-hmm. but he was their he was their, their, their physical trainer and so I spent the day with him neat guy I got to know him real well and before I left I was supposed to leave the next morning, uh, the, the owner, Harold Cat, asked me to come by his home. So I, uh, and I was a young, young guy, man. I, I didn't, you know, I, I'm just trying to, I'm a country kid from North Carolina, just, try, just trying to soak all this in, trying to figure out what's going to happen <laughs> next. And uh, so I go to his home and, you know, he's got this, this, this really beautiful property there in, in Philly. And uh, I go there and I walk out and I come to his pool. He's sitting by his pool. And uh, he's sitting there, and he's got, like, a robe and slippers on. And so I walk up. He introduces himself and asks me to sit down. So I sit down. And, uh, you know, he's got this huge swimming pool with the, the Sixers logo in his pool. It's just really impressive place. And we start talking. And uh, he says, uh, you know, we're talking about basketball a little bit and, you know, living in Philadelphia and that type of thing. Would I like to play for the – 76ers and I was like of course you know you got great talent here it'd be fun you know Moses Malone and Charles Dr. J was still I think he was at the end of his career and whatnot so he said okay so uh, we talked for about 45 minutes and uh, I'd come in that morning I'd taken a physical for them and uh, during the physical they put this you know the oxygen thing on you get on the treadmill and you have to run so I had you know I wasn't the fastest guy but I could always run really long i just i had a big vo2 always did don't know why i just i was one of those guys that just could run forever and i remember i got on there and i started running and i was supposed to be on the thing i was supposed to run like they want, they want you to be on there like 12 minutes just to check the oxygen in your blood see what kind of shape you're in and i mean i just started running and ended up running for like uh, half an hour it just didn't bother and uh i remember pat when i got off he's like that's incredible that you can run that long um, he said, you know, have you been working out? That's why I work out a little bit. I haven't been working out like I had during the season, but, you know, he's like, that's just incredible. So 
he he comes back to pick me up, and uh, he tells Mr. Katz that, and Katz says, well, I want to see him move. So we go down. He has a full-court basketball court on his property. And uh, I walk into the gym, and uh, it was Andrew, Tony, and a couple other guys were working out there. And I just, you know, I was like, I, you know, I said to myself, I thought their practice facility was over by you know, the Coliseum. Why are all these guys over here on his property working? I just thought it was odd. And so um, I get out, and I, I've got, you know, I've, I don't have workout clothes on anymore, on anymore. I've got, you know, a sweatsuit on and whatnot. And so he says, well, I want you to go out there and just run around and play some pickup. So I said, all right. So I go out, you know, we're, you know I got three – four or five guys and they're all guards and I'm out running around and we're just trying to, you know, it's really awkward and makes no sense. And we play and, you know, finish up and I'm soaking wet and I don't have a change of clothes, but you know, you're kids, you don't care. Anyway, I get, I leave and I get on the plane. I go back and I get back to Chapel Hill. And the next day I go in and talk to coach Smith and coach Smith. Well, how did you visit school? I said, anyway, great. Had a good time. And he looked, he said, how did the visit to Philly go? I said, well, I said, it was great. I said, you know, they had me run for half an hour on this machine and check all this stuff out. And he's like, run for half an hour. I said, yeah, they asked me to do all this stuff. And I actually played pickup with Andrew Tony, which is kind of cool. And Coach Smith said, you played, you did what? I said, well, I played pickup with some guys. <laughs> he's like, are you kidding me? I was like, no. He's like, that's you know, No, no. You, you, you could have stepped on somebody's ankle or uh, you don't do that. And I was like, well, it's, it's done now. Oh, he was livid. And so he picked up the phone. He called Harold Katz. And Coach Smith was a, a great man. Didn't use any foul language or anything like that. But he lit into him. It was unbelievable. I, I didn't know what had happened or what had done. And they, they kind of were going at it and going at it. And, he, and Coach Smith was like, you know, that is so, you know, as far as integrity and all those types of things, he's like, he crossed the line. You know, you could have hurt yourself. Um, you know, you, you were there under, you know, you know, circumstances to check out and to just take a look and to explore. You weren't there to work. You don't work for them. And so, um, you could have really, you know, but it didn't, it didn't, but anyway, so long story short, he was really hot. Um, they had some words and, uh, that, that kind of ended with that. I didn't think anything else about it. We go to the draft. Um, and I'm actually there, you know, I'm with Lynn, we're hanging out because Lynn and I played basketball. Uh, that summer, he had barnstormed with us, which is where, you know, college athletes are, when you're done with, with college, you get together with a bunch of guys and you travel around in the region and play basketball and make a little bit of money and, and just have fun. And uh, it was remarkable because, you know, we were having a, just a heck of a time. Man, every town we'd go to, you know, we would get a keg of beer, throw it in the car and just raise and cane. He wouldn't even drink a beer. He was so into his physical fitness at that time, it's remarkable. He wouldn't touch alcohol. And, uh, I mean, I rode him like a dog. He he just wouldn't do it. And uh, he kind of watched what he ate. And, you know, we, you know, back in the eight, late 80s, we didn't know anything about it. We didn't diet. Everyone thought that eating, you know, pasta was the greatest thing you could ever do. Right. Games. You know, we were, we were still on the back end of the era where if you – you know, you, you drank too much water at a timeout, you were a sissy, you know. Just <laughs> and so to watch him, you know, he kind of watched what he ate and didn't eat too much meat and all this stuff. And I was like, man, you're, you're an idiot. So, uh, anyway, we had fun, got to know him pretty well. And when we got to New York for the draft, you know, we, we hung out. 
because you know we chit chat because we had also went on a couple of official visits in college together. As a matter of fact, we both were in Maryland together, and we talked about playing at Maryland together, and uh, uh, came pretty close to doing that. Was, you know, my my family with my mom was a huge Lefty Grizzell fan, and so that's another story. But uh, so we're talking, and I remember we're sitting in the lobby there, and Lynn said, "Man, Brad, what are you gonna do when you when you get your money?" I said, well, I said, oh, man, I don't know. I just, you know, I'll probably buy a pickup truck or something. I don't know, just something to go back and forth. No big deal. He's like, oh, come on, man. He's like, you got to get a bin. You got to get a great big bin. He said, man, I'm going to get the biggest bin you've ever seen. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I was just laughing. You know, we were just laughing <laughs> because we're a couple of kids come from backgrounds, didn't have a whole lot. And now we're getting ready to step into an opportunity that's a dream. And, uh, so I, we're getting ready to go to the draft and uh, selection day, and so we're walking out, and we all get on the bus, and uh, all the players, all the guys who think they're going to be top 15, 20 picks are on the bus. And I'm looking around at some of these guys, and I, and I knew a lot of them, and I just was kind of laughing to myself. I said to myself, what? this is a bus load of knuckleheads. I remember saying that to myself. I'm looking at some of these guys. I won't call names, but I'm just saying, man, these guys are ding. This is funny. I said, <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see where we all get drafted because, you know, I, I knew a lot of these guys, and I just said, man, this is – I remember saying this is a bus level knucklehead. Huh. So I sit down, and uh, I told everybody, all those guys, nobody – I get the first seat because I'm the best player. You know, I told all the other guys, you know, <laughs> Washburn and Bedford and all these guys, you guys don't touch my seat. Now, there's going to be a problem. And so I get on the bus, and Lenny is sitting, like, right behind where I told him my seat was. So I, I get on. I said, I'm glad you guys listened, you know. The king is here. I was just messing with him, just having a good time, just jabbing at him. Telling him I told him all I was going to be first pick. And I thought I thought possibly Lenny. So he was great. You know, I, I was a really good player, and I could develop into being a, a great player, no doubt about it, because I had the skill set. But he was a a, a, a franchise-changing player as I look back on it. And I thought, you know, he, he's going to probably be the first pick. I think I'll be the second pick maybe go to Boston. And uh, that's going to be great. So we're sitting there, you know, we're talking. And uh, we're getting a little thing. It's me, him, I think Johnny Dawkins, somebody else. We're talking about our games and, you know, you know how many points we score and all this stuff. And, just, just talking about our averages and how many we thought we should have scored and all this stuff and just laughing. And David Falk comes on the bus. And at the time, he was working um, uh, for Donald Dell. They were together. And um, they were pro-serve. And I was uh, had, was talking to another agency, which was called Advantage International, but I hadn't quite 100% decided if I was going to go with them or not. So David Falk sits down across from me. He says, do you know what's going on? And he's talking to me. And I was like, no, I don't, I don't know what's going on. He said, uh, uh, he says, I think Philadelphia is going to trade your pick uh, to the Cavaliers, the Cleveland Cavaliers, for Roy Henson and some cash. I said, oh, okay. So I said, I'm going to Cleveland possibly. He said, I think you're going to Cleveland. I think you're going to be the first pick and you're going to go to Cleveland. Okay, well, cool. I didn't even know where Cleveland was. That's you know, that's fine. That's not. I didn't bet it there. Have no clue. Have no idea where Cleveland is. So we get over to the draft, and everything happens that way. And and I end up going to uh, Cleveland, 
and Lenny goes to Boston, and then uh, I think Chris Washburn was third or fourth along through there, and William Bedford and some of those guys. And so we're all excited and happy. And so after I walk off the stage, talk to David Stern, walk off, I walk down the thing, and I'm trying to think to myself, okay, Cleveland Cavaliers, who is their coach? I was trying to get off, just pull it all in my head. Who's the coach? Who's the GM? I was trying to think of some of the players. Of course, you know, you think of Lloyd Free at the time, who's world be free now. And, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay. And I was like, man, those guys, they're terrible. So I can remember, I was like, and they, they wear <laughs> orange uniforms, and they're awful. Uh, I said, all right, well, it'll be interesting. So that's kind of how those days went. And then I went back to Chapel Hill. Uh, I picked an agent and went with Advantage, which is now Octagon. Still with them, but for 30 years, obviously. Uh-huh. Uh and uh, I get a call from uh, Lee Fentress, and we're talking, and he says, I need you to be in uh, Boston. You're going to do a shoe deal with uh, Lenny Bikes, and it's going to be the, the largest deal in sports history. It's going to be the first time the one and two picks have signed um, together with Reebok. I said, cool. I said, when I get there, he says, you got to be here in the morning. I said, oh, wow, okay. Um, good deal. Um, so I, I go, this is following the draft. I go to, well, I'm going to get on the plane. And uh, as I'm walking through the airport that next morning, it's really early, um, one of my roommates in school there had worked at the, uh, the little baggage claim deal there in Chapel Hill. And uh, we'd been up all night, and I saw him going through, and he was hung over and looked awful. And he's like, man. Did you hear what happened? I just kept walking. I didn't. I was. I didn't feel good. So, I was getting to the plane. I get on the airplane. I'm sitting there, and this is early in the morning. And the pilot comes back and says, "Man, congratulations on being the first pick in the draft." I said, I "Appreciate it." He said, "Man, it's terrible what happened to Lynn Bias." And I said, uh, "What do you mean?" He said, "You haven't heard?" I said, "No." He said, "Lynn Bias is dead." Oh my God. And I said, "What do you mean he's dead?" He's like, "Well," he said, "You, you need to get some." He said, I, "He said he died this morning. Something happened, but he's dead." I I was just sitting there, and I couldn't quite take it all in. And so I get off the plane. I walk off the plane. I walk back, and, you know, back then, we walked into the airport, pick up a phone, and, you know, you had to put some, you know, it was a pay phone, so I put a buck in, and I called Coach Smith. And he's like, yeah, come come to chapel, come back to the, I want you to come over to campus. I need to talk to you. I get back over to campus, and he's like, uh, yeah, just, you know, sit down. He said, there's really been some tragic news this morning. He uh, said, uh, we lost Lynn Bias. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I don't, I don't have all the information, but there was a party last night. It seems that uh, uh, something happened, and he went to cardiac arrest. And he says, let's get more information, and we'll go from there. So that's how that whole day of the draft and day after the draft and the day after all kind of came together for me. Oh, my. So, so you so you found out the pilot mm-hmm. on the plane when you were going to Boston. So you landed in Boston and turned right back around. Didn't even uh, didn't even get to Boston. We were taking off, going to Boston. Oh, and then you uh, got off the plane. I got off the plane. I never took off. I walked right back off the plane after he told me, and uh, went back and talked to went back went back to Chapel Hill. Went and talked to Coach Smith and found out what happened. I had no idea, and it was just I was supposed to meet him that morning. And, and and given all your experiences with Len Bias and things that you'd said about everything that he would put not put into his body, yeah, it, it's still unfathomable to you. Oh, to this day, uh, as I was sitting there, 
and and finally found out what what the 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 you know the rumor was that happened. I said, "There's no way. There's no way." I've seen all these shows over the years with these guys who talk about what happened. Nobody's ever asked me, and uh, I find it interesting because I, I've seen all these shows, uh, these documentaries on Lynn Bias, all these guys talking about him. But I was supposed to meet him that day. I I saw I I I spent time with him. He there's no way. There's no way I, he wouldn't drink a beer. Uh, there's no way. And so when I heard that he died of, uh, you know, of, of cocaine, basically cocaine arrhythmia and poisoning, I, I told I said, there's no way. There's no way. I, and to this day, and I know it's, you know, everything's been laid to rest, and it was one of those deals. And the only summation I can have is, you know, and the excitement of what had just happened because it was such a life-changing event for all of us. Uh, he just got caught up with the wrong person and did something that I think he'd never done before, and it killed him. I just think that's the 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 the, the blunt truth. I think he got excited, and this is like I say, I, it's the only thing that could have happened. And and the gentleman, the triple, whatever his name was, Brian Triple, introduced him to something that he'd never done before, and it took his life. Brad, how much have you talked to? Len's family or or friends or people around him about this, yeah. either at that time or or later on. Yeah, uh, never never talked to his family uh, about it because I just you know they they just went through so much because shortly after that you know his little brother was killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just you know, and I never had a chance to talk or even speak to his mom, who's been just an incredible uh, advocate and very very strong. But I talked to a lot of his teammates. Uh, you know, we would. I'd see a lot of guys that played with him, um, a lot of guys that, that uh, you know, uh, we would just sit and talk. I mean, tons of them. I've talked to so many of his, his teammates that that kind of echoed what I was saying. And, uh, you know, just – and guys that knew him, just guys that I know that know Lynn, like I know him, and just – it's just it's just an incredible tragedy, and we all feel the same way. I mean, you know. Obviously, you want to feel that way because I don't want to think the guy was doing, you know, something that just didn't. It, it, the picture, the pieces of the puzzle just didn't fit together. Mm-hmm. I just don't think there's any way he could have been living living some secret life, you know, snorting coke and doing those types of things, and been the the player and the athlete and just the person I was around for long periods of time to to see who wouldn't. I mean, he watched what he ate. So I it's just, so extreme, so extreme, so so extreme, absolutely. But uh, just incredible tragedy, and it would have been it would have been incredible. And, and the basketball thing, and obviously we're talking basketball, but you know that's that's obviously the smallest part of it. But it would have been interesting uh, to watch him play pro basketball just to see just to see what he would have become because uh, he, like I say, he and Michael were so close in ability. Um, it'd have been been interesting, you know, and, and, and then, you know, you never know. We all think we know, but you never know. But uh, it's just unfortunate and tragic that his family and his, his friends didn't get to, to see and I didn't get a chance to play against him at that level. All right, so it's the first time you mentioned Michael Jordan. What was it like being 16 years old as a freshman, stepping onto Carolina's campus? Mm-hmm. Right after winning, right after they won a national title. 
You know, it's different for me. I'm a, I'm a different kind of kid. I grew up. I'm like a you know, I'm a little bit of a farm kid. I I, I love basketball from the standpoint of um, it gave me an opportunity to number one go to college for free. I knew that was going to be a great opportunity to get to school mm-hmm. for free, uh, and it gave me an outlet. I, I you know as I was a kid growing up, even all the way through college. Uh, and probably even into my first couple of years into the NBA, I was not a a rah rah fan of of basketball players. So when I got to Chapel Hill uh, to play basketball, and at that that time North Carolina was you know obviously just an incredible incredible program, coaching us an incredible coach. I didn't understand the magnitude of playing uh, for University of North Carolina. Uh, you know, I was obviously heavily recruited and had all these opportunities and saw all these different things. And so when I got there and the first time I walk into the gym and I'm watching, you know, pick up basketball there and I'm looking at this game, these games in the, in the beginning of September on the, you know, on campus and I'm seeing all of these NBA basketball players playing pickup basketball. And I'm starting to recognize a few of these guys. I'm like, man, why are these guys out here playing basketball? You know, shouldn't they be at training camp or something like that? And so I started to realize a little bit of the culture that was in Chapel Hill and, and what it kind of evolved in, in being uh, a part of that basketball program and that basketball family hits you automatically it's it's all it's like you walk into that gym and you've you know i've walked into a bunch of gyms as a high school basketball player and all over the country and doing all these you know all american games and stuff like that and it's, it's a big moment but i remember walking into that gym and watching in carmichael and watching that first pickup game that i was going to be playing in in a few days and looking at all these professional basketball players and i felt really small I felt like the whole moment felt so much bigger than I was that it was really interesting because it kind of kind of took guys and these big programs do this. They, they, it takes guys and it kind of puts you in your place. Now it's not that way today because you got AAU programs that are just you know they're huge and these these young men come to campus now they're they have so much experience and and whatnot that the moment's not very big. But you got to remember, I left playing pickup basketball with my ex-high school teammates who were, you know, you're killing them. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know you're the best thing in the county. You're killing them. And you're, you're going, then you go to the, you know, I was in a little town of Black Mountain, North Carolina, which is a really small town in western North Carolina. And the, the large, the biggest city next to us was Asheville, North Carolina. And that was, for little country kids, that was the big city. So I would go there and play against the best that they had and just, crush them and so uh now all of a sudden i'm walking into this gym and and i'm watching you know pick up basketball games i'm looking at you know walter davis and you know mark ivaroni's playing and all these guys and i'm like okay this is going to be different and so uh i remember going out to play and uh you know you had kurt rambus I'm, I'm trying to figure out why all these guys in chambers chapel hill but I go play the first time, and I just I was trying to just play my game, and the speed was so incredible, um, you know, with those guys, and, and 
that was the first thing I realized is that I got to play at full speed if I'm going to play. And so that was really what kind of set you back uh, was just the speed at which the game had, at, at the level it had stepped to. So it was, it was tough. The first, I'd say first two months being on that campus and going into that gym every day, you know, and coach Smith kind of sitting up in the top watching and just the, the, the guys who were there playing, uh, it was unbelievable. I mean, you may see, you know, Larry Bird walk through the gym. It was incredible. It was just incredible. And all these guys want to play pickup because you had, you know, the best pickup games in the in the United States of America were in Chapel Hill during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So a uh, really incredible moment and really awe-inspiring. And then it's funny how you look back from four years later and you're in charge of those games and the moment's not that big. It's, you know, it's just it's really interesting to – to look back and see that perspective. But the initial uh, moment was huge, and uh, I thought to myself, boy, this is going to be interesting. I wonder, how, wonder what's going to happen next. I've always been that kind of guy. I never, I'm never one that says, oh, I can't do it. Or, I always wonder what's going to happen next. And, and uh, what happened next was interesting. It was, a, it was a heck of a lesson. We want to get to the Michael Jordan stuff and how you guys were sort of linked eternally as, as, you, as you both uh, – we're in the NBA playing against each other, but I'm curious with Dean Smith, I know you spoke about two things that he was extremely loyal, no matter what, Mm -hmm. and how he would write handwritten notes to you. So I guess my question is two parts. One, what's, what's an example of just how loyal he could be. And two, what, what would he say in those, in those notes to you? Yeah. Coach Smith, uh, uh, just remarkable human being. Um, you know, we, we talk about, and again, we're talking about basketball, but, you know, being in his presence uh, and, and being a part of something that his family he created uh, is the most impactful thing that has happened in my life. Um, you know, he, he was really unique, and, and I think the thing that made him so, so, so different uh, is in his, his belief. You know, he was a, uh, a devout Christian man. Um, he was a, a, a devout uh, Democrat, extremely liberal. Uh, I used to kid him about that, but just very, very, very liberal Democrat. And uh, would often speak his mind on politics uh, back in an era where coaches just kind of didn't do that. Um mm. And I always found that really interesting, the, the psychology that he, he employed in his everyday life, whether it was dealing with us or with other people, was interesting. He always, you know, it, it's not playing games, but he was always challenging people to rethink. And uh, i never forget, I was coming back from uh, uh, Asheville or Black Mountain. I was coming back to campus, and uh, I was riding with this, this young lady. And uh, we were coming into Burke County, North Carolina, and uh, uh, I was driving, and uh, you know she was a young Caucasian lady riding back to school with me. And uh, I'm just riding down the road, and all of a sudden I look up, and you know there's cop cars behind me, you know. And I looked, I mean I wasn't speeding, I was just riding, you know, no big deal. And I'm riding along, I look, and so they all, there's a few of them, and they all turn their lights on. All right, so 
you know, they rode behind me for a little while, but I, like I said, I didn't think anything about it. Get pulled over. Guy walks up to the car, and uh, he looks at me. He said, uh, boy, where are you going? I said, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to Chapel Hill. He said, uh, you been drinking? And this is like a Sunday afternoon. I'm trying to get back to school. <laughs> I'm like, well, no, I, I was at church about two hours ago. I, I don't, you know, drink on Sunday after church. He's like, huh? He's like, ma'am, where are you going? And she's like, well, I'm going back to Chapel Hill, I guess. And I'm looking at him like, well, if she's in the car with me, I guess. I, <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're, we're both going. So just really uncomfortable. And I was, you know, I, I, you know, I've always had to, and it's a blessing from my parents. I, I've always, even when I'm in a tough situation, I've always had the ability to laugh, you know, when stuff's just ridiculous. So I'm kind of laughing, and he's looking at me like, you know, what are you laughing at, you know? And I'm, I say anything. He's like, so uh, he's like, he said, just hold tight. He goes back, runs my tags. He comes back, and uh, he's like, oh, okay. He said, you play basketball there at Chapel Hill, don't you? I said, yes, sir. Play play basketball. He said, well. He said, uh, you need to slow down coming through Burke County. I said, well, I said, I was going, I think I was going like 48 miles an hour. I don't know. Speed limit's like 55. He said, well, I had you going 65. He said, so you're going to get a ticket today. I said, all right. So he gives me a ticket. You know, and I pull out. And, man, he followed me for like 20 miles. It's really odd. So I get off the exit there. I get to Chapel Hill. I go, you know, next morning, Monday morning, I go and talk to Coach Smith. I said, Coach, I got pulled over. Burke County, I said, uh, guy held me like an hour, and I said it was just really you know, odd. And finally, he says, "Oh, you play basketball," and he let me go. But he gave me a ticket. I said, "You know, I, okay, it is what it is." I said, "I wasn't speeding." So I give the ticket to Coach Smith, and he's looking at it. And he's like, "It's got also a level four. It says level four violation." So we start looking at that. So we call the little attorney that's there, and he says, uh, "Coach Smith says the attorney says that it." said the guy smelled alcohol in the car i said well coach i didn't have any i didn't have anything in the car i just had my clothes and i was just riding he said okay so he got i mean coach smith got he was just absolutely pissed off he went as far only and i forgot about it i had a ticket paid it no big deal whatever went on about my business but he went after this guy and leveled racism and, and just absolutely went after the guy uh, the officer, and went as far as going to the, to the state uh, and investigating this guy, this officer, and just made his life miserable. Uh, and the guy ended up having a terrible pay. He's just not a very good guy. But just it was over something that was really small, but in my mind, you know, it was small, but in his mind, it's something that could have been a problem, could have been a bigger problem. If I'd have said something smart, if I'd have been a, you know, just whatever. Sure. Wrong time of day. It could have been a problem. And I didn't see that. And I remember talking to him years later about it and talking about, you know, systemic racism and those types of things that, you know, in my, in that era that were a little bit prevalent, but it was just kind of the way it was. But he was explaining to me how wrong it was. Now this is beyond basketball. This is something that, you know, I didn't. I grew up in a, a little town of, you know, 3,500 people. Maybe we had, you know, a hundred African American people, of which I'm, all, you know, I'm kin to all of them. And so, but it's 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 pretty segregated. But it's a very, uh, very calm 
community uh, because everybody just kind of did their thing and stayed in their place, even in the 80s, you know. And so you don't – I didn't realize, I didn't recognize what had happened there and why, you know, you know, you get – I got pulled over every other month for no reason driving up and down the road. You know, you just – I didn't understand that. And I just thought that's the way it was. And he explained to me and he showed me how egregious this is, how wrong this is because of the color of my skin. And he would always talk to us and really implore us to live our lives as if we're equal, no matter what. And and this is beyond basketball. Like I'm saying, this is something that I don't know how many coaches would do that. You know, I don't know how many coaches. Uh, he went. I remember at one time, Governor Hunt, Jim Hunt, was a very popular uh, governor in the state of North Carolina for many terms. And I remember they had, had a. Uh, it was a political forum. And all of these people were there, and, and body Coach Smith. And this just totally blew me away. Coach Smith was there, and they were talking. And uh, they were talking about the politics of North Carolina and education. Coach Smith, very pro-education, uh, really pushed us hard academically. And I remember they were talking to all these, these different uh, politicos, and they got to Coach Smith. And Coach Smith started talking about education. He started talking about the lack of educational opportunities for African-Americans in the state of North Carolina. And he also started talking about the prison systems in North Carolina, how uh, the prisons were full of African-Americans, uh, you know, just, just the inequality there and, and how it was wrong and how it was a system of, of trying to corral uh, the African-American culture. And then he looked at, Jim Hunt, who's the governor of North Carolina, and said, you, sir, are a murderer. Uh, he was, wow. he was wow. talking about the death penalty in North Carolina. He said, you are a murderer by keeping the death penalty intact. He says, that is murder. And he said, and then he started talking about biblical, and it just was unbelievable. Uh, and and, and it, it, you look back through the, his life, uh, as a as a man, uh, Coach Smith and and his stances on uh, you know racism and inequality and abortion and and you know be, you know very pro life and and the the death penalty in North Carolina, it's remarkable, it's remarkable. And then when you look at the basketball side of the way he impacted the game. You're looking at you're just talking about a guy. It's just it's so much more than how many games you win, uh, and that's why when you look back through his tenure at North Carolina, there's a, a huge. It's not a thread. It's a cord. Uh, I mean, I see. It's fun. I was standing. I was in Santa Monica last week, and I was getting ready to walk into a restaurant, and I heard somebody yelling my name. It was a crowd, and I was just trying to turn in. I was like, I wasn't paying attention, and all of a sudden, somebody grabs my shoulder. And it was King Rice and Rick Fox, hmm. who were younger than I am. Yeah. And but they're like my brothers. And we hugged each other and it was just like I was so happy to see them. And it's if I see Billy Cunningham, uh, who's much older than I am. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy to see him. Same thing if I'm talking to Michael Jordan or if I'm talking to Sam Perkins or James Worthy, or if I'm talking to Ralph Meekins, who was the manager. On, on some of our teams, or David Hart. It's like Coach Smith created this huge family 
of guys and, and gals who were managers, and we're all linked through his, uh, through him and his, his ideologies and his philosophies that he imparted on all of us. And, and interestingly enough, a lot of us in that time and there come from, you know, really, especially the, the, the guys of, you know, the African-American guys come from impoverished backgrounds or really small town backgrounds. And you learn how to almost become a, not necessarily a man, but that is, but a gentleman. That's what you became uh, through being around Coach Smith, uh, being under his watch from the age of, you know, 17 to, to, to you know, 21, 22, uh, some guys 23. Uh, the impact, my wife kids me today. Uh, about my man, you know, some of my mannerisms are, are, are Coach Smith like, and and I, you know, I laugh about it, whatever. But you know, I watched him, and and I think this is what makes him, like I say, so unique. And we all, all players that go through and play for coaches, uh, whether it's high school coaches or t-ball coaches, little league coach, whatever, you have great respect for those people, and you learn something from them. So my experience may not be a whole lot different than an experience someone else may have had in a different way from their coach, whether it was, you know, Coach Terry Holland at Virginia or Mike Krzyzewski at Duke or, or whomever. But my the experience that we had was one of evolving as young men and being able to walk off that campus into the world uh, with, with leadership skills that were uh, not not the type of skills that 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 were overbearing uh, and and you know just athletically driven, but skills that were of you know hard work, but also empathy and uh, knowledge and taking the, the the time to understand and learn about the people you're dealing with and the people you're around. I never will forget my senior year. We were playing in this tournament in New York, the Big Apple tournament, and you know it was it was us and then a bunch of Ivy League schools, and we were playing. I think we were playing Brown or someone like that. And um, man, I was killing these guys. I mean, I was killing them, and uh, I could have scored fifty. I mean, everybody. I mean, it just was killing. I remember we went at halftime, and I'd scored like twenty-five points or something like that at half. I remember Coach Smith came in, and he was just he was aggravated, and he walked in. And we're all laughing and stuff. We're up like 30 points, you know. And he looked at me and he said, Brad, I said, yes. He said, uh, you missed three screens that you could have set for your teammates that would have given us opportunities. He said that. He said, you just are not focused on what you're doing. I'm sitting there saying to myself, this man lost his mind. I just scored, man, I'm killing. It can't nobody in this gym guard me. And he chewed me out for about 30 seconds for not setting a screen for Joe Wolf. And, and I, you know, and so I'm sitting there. I'm sitting, I remember, I was sitting, I'm, I remember I was sitting, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the sweat drop on the floor and I'm saying to myself, okay, now, I, so now I'm starting to think, when did I miss that screen? I'm like, okay, I'm trying to think for missed screen. It kind of, it really pissed me off what it did. So we go back out. He's just, he's at the, well, he's at the chalk, but he's just showing us how we, you know, we're, we're, we're messing up on this. We didn't run this play right. We didn't rotate on defense. It's just this, this, this. So we ended up winning probably like 50 points 
we get through and I'm, you know, we go on and, you know, about a month later we're playing Wake Forest and we're I'm playing, I'm having a really bad game. I just can't, I'm in a bad rhythm. You know, I've scored like 12 points or something like that. It's like two minutes left in the game. We're down four points. He calls timeout and we go over there and sit down. He's like, all right. He's like, we're playing really well. We're playing great. He's like, Brad, he said, this is what we're going to run. We're going to run this play three different times. We're going to run it three different ways. We're going to go through you all three times. He's like, you're going to score. And you're going to, you're going to, you're going to score the winning basket. All right. He said, I'm not going to call another timeout. This is how we're going to do it. I'm sitting there saying to myself, okay, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the man. I can do this, but I'm playing horrible. And, and they're double teaming me, and it's really difficult. But we go out, we play, we run those plays, and I, I score like six or eight points in two minutes. It was incredible. I uh, didn't score the winning basket because we actually had gotten ahead during that point in time and ended up winning the game by like four. And uh, I just was sitting there, and years later, I was talking to him about that. I was like, you know, his mind was unbelievable. I talked to him about the Brown thing. He laughed. And then I talked to him about that Wake Forest game. He's like, yeah. He's like, I said, you told me I was going to score the winning basket. I said, you thought I was going to hit a shot or have the confidence. I thought to take, to take the shot at the buzzer and win it. He said, no, you, you did score the winning basket. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you scored like eight points in a row. And it put us up. You know, and we went on to win. I said we never, but we never looked back after you got us ahead. I said, well, darn, I never thought about it, about it like that. <laughs> He's like, and I was like, you know, why did you do that? I said, you know, and this was after I was gone and came back, and this is just, you know, we're we're no longer coaching and player. We're just, you know, kind of coaching and son now. And he's like, well, he's like psychologically. People are so different, but he said to be a really good coach. Now this is him telling me this. He said. You have to, you know, you have to make everyone think that they're being treated the same, but you do have to approach each individual differently. And I said, what do you mean by that? He's like, I told Michael Jordan he couldn't hold his breath for five minutes. He said Michael would be blowing snot bubbles out of his nose trying to hold his breath for five minutes. He said, if I told Brad Darty to hold his breath for five minutes, you laugh at me. I said, yeah, you're exactly right, because I'm not trying to hold my breath. I'm not. <laughs> he said, he said, so sometimes it becomes visceral versus intellectual. He says, now, if I told you to run through that wall, it was going to be for the betterment of your teammates. He said, you would give it a consideration. I said, I'd give it a consideration. I probably wouldn't do it. I said, but if I told you that wall was actually a fake wall and it would collapse. And only you knew that, but your teammates didn't know that. But it was going to be for the experience you do it. I said, absolutely. He says, well, that's what I know about you, and that's what I know about Michael. And he said, that's what, I, that's what you have to learn about people when you deal with people. I did, he was just remarkable in the way he thought about things and the effort and the energy he put into us individually. I mean, he would yell at some people in practice and others. He went like I'm a perfect example of that. I remember we would we would play. We had I had certain teammates who were really good, and and he would yell at them, and 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 then with me, he would stop and he'd say, "Come here," and we would discuss it. And I, and he's like, "If I yell at you, your 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 mechanism to constructive criticism is just to laugh." And I'm like, "Yeah, it is." And he says, if you're doing that, you're not accepting anything I'm saying. And it doesn't bother you enough 
that you're going to do something about it. I'm like, no. He says, but if I take the time to explain it to you, you work hard enough, you know, you'll try your darndest to make it happen. But it's got to kind of be on your terms. Like, that's just incredible because as a coach, I would never be able to do that. I just yell at everybody. You know, it's just – so that's some – that's pretty long, but uh, kind of a, a little synopsis of Coach, coach Smith in a, in a nutshell. The last thing then, Brad, on, on Coach Smith, did he really leave all of his former players 200 bucks in his will to have dinner on him? It's unbelievable. So we go and, uh, you know, we have his memorial service, and I was so honored uh, by his family to, to be asked to, to speak on behalf of, of some of the guys. So it's myself and Phil Ford and, and Antoine Jameson. And um, so we, we have that event in, in the Smith Center, and it was unbelievable. Uh, you know, there were 20,000 people there, and we were telling Coach Smith stories and uh, saying goodbye. And uh, we go through that and do that. And then the next day, I go back home and I go into my office and there's a there's a letter on my desk and so uh sat there for a little while, I wasn't paying no attention to it. something from Chapel Hill. I figured it's alumni association wanting money again or something, so I, I just let it sit there. And uh eventually I get around to opening it opening it that evening and I open it up and it said uh a letter from Coach. It said Bradley, he called me Bradley, he said, Bradley, he said, Here's two hundred dollars. He said, I want you to go out and have dinner on coach. And uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, and there was a check for 200 bucks made out to me to take my wife out to dinner. Uh, just unbelievable. And he did that for all of his players and, and managers who were under his guidance for those almost 40 years. So just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Even posthumously, we're in his thoughts. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And uh, just remarkable, remarkable, remarkable person. That is incredible. Um, You brought up a a few times, obviously, Michael Jordan. And and there's two things, obviously, I'm I'm curious about. I want to ask you about the shot. But before I do, we hear all the time nowadays, well, guys back then weren't friendly and all that. So because Mm -hmm. you and Jordan had the relationship that you did, being that you're both Carolina guys, being that you were both elite players in the NBA, what was your relationship like on and off the court once you got to the league? Yeah, I've always had a a, a little different relationship with Michael, even in college. Uh, you know, he was such an incredible player, and and everyone always was you know kind of curtsying to Michael, uh, and that's what happened. Yeah, he's a big man. Okay. And I just I didn't do that because I didn't I wasn't into the hype of basketball. Uh, right, right. You know, um, as a matter of fact, my sophomore year, my people don't even know this was a million years ago. We were a really good basketball team, and we were going into the ACC tournament. And uh, at the end of practice every day, uh, Michael would play people one on one. So this day, uh, I was playing in one on one. And uh, I could beat him, and he beat me. Uh, we just play games to three and stuff like that. So if I got the basketball, you know, I'm backing him down and not letting him get it. I'm trying to dunk on him or shoot hooks. If he got the basketball, it's going to be hard to beat him. So we're playing, and we're getting ready to go into the ACC tournament. We got a game. We played one game. Then we got Duke. We're playing Duke next. And they were they were getting. This was when they were really coming into their own. And uh, we're playing one on one, and he goes underneath 
the, the basket to try to shoot a reverse layup, and I come across to try to block it, and I jump, and I, when I take my hand, I, I hit my finger, my, my fingers on the bottom of the backboard, and I dislocate two of my fingers. Oh. Oh, they're going the opposite direction. I'm sitting there, and, and we got, we're playing the next day. Ooh. And uh, we immediately stopped, and he's like, you're all right? I'm, yeah, man, I'm fine. I'm going to go see the trainer, and, I, and my hand's kissed. So, you know, I go through that night. I get up the next day. Uh, man, my fingers are just, they're gnarly. So Coach Smith didn't want to say anything about it. He didn't want to use any excuses. Uh, man, I couldn't even touch basketball. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't start that game. Uh, they ended up beating us, uh, and, and we played pretty well. But there was just – I come in the middle of the game. No one ever talked about it. Even though I had this big thing on my hand, no one ever said anything about it. And it just always aggravated me that, you know, because we were, we were really good. We were going we to beat them, no, no doubt about it. Uh, but I'd always try to challenge Michael to play. And, you know, when, when we play pickup in the summer, you know, he'd always have a team. And and whoever else was there, whether it's Sam Perkins or whatever, they'd have a team. But I'd always have my team. You know, if his team won, I'm, I was the guy. I don't care. Anybody, I'm picking my own team. And uh, I was just kind of that kind. Of, and I, always, I, I wasn't – I've never – been mean enough to be a bully, but I was always the type of guy. I'd always laugh, but I'd always stand my ground. I'm gonna do what I want to do, and so we would go at it. You know, my team versus team. We, you know, try to beat them and that type of thing. So uh, I never was a guy that was the blow blowing smoke up Michael's dress type of guy. Like a lot of guys were because they were either in awe of him or or scared of him uh, athletically. You know, because he could dominate and that type of thing. I didn't do that. I'm not that guy. I've never been that way with anyone. And so uh, I think he's always kind of respected that from me. And so when we got to the league, uh, you know, people don't remember this, but, you know, his first few years in Chicago, they were terrible. And I remember my first couple of years in Cleveland, you know, getting to Cleveland and trying to create some culture change and, we were getting a little bit better, you know. They went, you know, we our first year we won like 41 games where they had won like 27 in the past. So it was a big change, but the Bulls weren't very good, and we beat them a lot. And uh, you know, they were we were kind of in the same, always right around the same number for the first two or three years, four years of wins. So we played a lot, and uh, you know, we played six times. Those were times we would beat them four to two in this regular season, and and then. As Scotty started to emerge, but that, during that whole period, though, Michael and I always talked, and you know, on the court, you know, man, I, I, I try to take his head off if I could on a screen or anything, because you know, it's just the way it was then. You know, you then back in the eight, man, you played hard. I never gave him one out. He went to the basket. I hit him as hard as I could hit anyone, or foul him, those types of things. But you know, I remember as they got better, and 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 when Phil Jackson came into the the conversation and even you know coach Collins did a great job right up until they went on this dynasty run um as scotty started to evolve you know that basketball team really took off because now you had two dynamic ball handlers in an era of post play where you played inside out now they they played the game outside in uh and that was really unique and and no no other team really adjusted to that um uh, quickly you know detroit could do it 
at that era because of Isaiah and Dumars uh, were capable of playing with them. But basically every other team in the East, it was the old, you know, the center with his back to the basket and you played mm-hmm. that way out, you know, uh, even from Boston to New York to us to Atlanta, uh, everyone played that way. And, you know, it just shows how quickly the game evolved because once Michael and Scotty started dominating ball handling, you know, they eliminated that center position. I mean, they had they had five guys that rotated through center, from Cartwright to Purdue to Luke Longley and to Bill Winning, and those guys didn't matter, really. It's what happened on that perimeter, and that changed the whole game. Anyway, I remember we were playing uh, them, and, and the first year we had become really formidable uh, in the in the conference. And, uh, you know, Michael and I always talk before the game, sometimes talk after. And uh, I had a bad game against them in Chicago in a playoff series and uh, hadn't played well. Actually, it was at home. We were against, at, uh, in Cleveland. I played really poorly, didn't shoot the ball well. And the thing that really I noticed during that first really competitive playoff series uh, in the 80s was that they could put so much pressure on our guards that I couldn't get the basketball. Mm-hmm. So they would switch. You'd switch, you know, Six seven Scotty Pippen on the six two Mark Price, and all of a sudden there was a problem with me getting a basketball. And mm-hmm. same thing, then Michael would switch. Michael was a hell of a defender, and so now I went from averaging like twenty a game, you know, and and I did that usually on very few shots. I, you know, I could have shot the ball more because I shot almost fifty five fifty percent from the floor. And I was a good free throw shooter. I'd shoot eight or nine free throws a game, and I, you know, shot seventy-five cents. So I'd make my free throws. So in theory, I could shoot it a bunch more and probably average close to thirty. But it, it wasn't best for my team. But my shots went from eight or nine to eleven, twelve shots a game, down to four. Mm. It was because of that, and, and so I wasn't touching the ball. And so, you know, the the, the theory everybody's talking: about, why isn't Brad? Why isn't he being aggressive? I, I couldn't get the ball. Because I'm not a ball handler, right. so it was incredible the way they did that. And so I remember, like I said, I missed some shots in Cleveland, didn't play well. So we go back to Chicago to play, and uh, uh, the game is tied, and I get fouled uh, at the end of the game, and uh, time is running out. There's only, there's only a couple of seconds on the clock, and I walk up the free throw line. I remember he walked by. He says, "Man, make these damn free throws." I said, "I'm gonna make them," and uh, I knocked them both down. And uh, we ended up winning the game. And then I think he scored like 60 games against us, something like that. But always encouraged. I mean, he he always respected me from that standpoint. And, and obviously, I respect him. He's the greatest player ever. But uh, always, you know, he, he, when you played, he was going. And the thing with Michael is, <clears throat> like, Mike, like all, you know, really great, great athletes, like the Kobe Bryant, those guys, once they, once you, show them any sign of weakness and they can get a if they find that sore spot they'll content they'll wear you out and uh he and i had a couple battles back in the dorm uh back in the day where you know mouthing off at each other and that type of thing and you know he would challenge guys and all this i I, you know we had we had a couple times i had i had to put him in the figure four (laughs) (laughs) and uh i think he knew even though I was a jovial guy, I, I wasn't intimidating by him at all, at all. Uh, even to my own 
stupidity as a player. You know, the guy was unbelievable. But I still thought I could beat him. You know, my team could beat his team because basketball is really not an individual sport. But I always thought my team could beat his team. And uh, I realized all those years later, like a lot of people, it just, yeah, it, it wasn't going to happen. But uh, great relationship to him, you know, with Michael. And and uh, I still go down to watch his team play now every once in a while and go to games and get to chat with him. So, uh, yeah, great, great relationship with him. There are going to be plenty of good seats available to go watch that team play this year. It usually is anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you, could, you could have a conversation with them during the game and wherever you're sitting across the court. I mean, they, oh, they not, absolutely. Yeah, they, they knocked you guys out of the playoffs four out of the five years that you were in the playoffs. And that first year, he yeah. went 45-5-5. and five. So aside from the defense, yeah. the 45-5-5 and five is absurd. Would they have been that successful? Or would Michael have won as much if he didn't have Scotty? Oh, no. Oh, no. No. Absolutely not. Uh, Scotty Pippen, in my opinion, he was the guy that was the problem. Uh, you know, you look at players. I mean, look at what Michael did before that. You know, before Scotty turned into the player he did. I mean, they were – Michael could score 70. They don't – you know, and what happens when you have a team like that with a guy like Michael, same thing that happened to Kobe Bryant in the last seven years of his career. You end up having a team with a guy who's really good and ends up taking a lot of bad shots, and they don't win it. You know, people forget that about Kobe Bryant. They they lost. They didn't make the playoffs what seven years straight. And, and, and people forget that, and, and and same thing with Michael. Scottie Pippen is the the single most important entity to that basketball team winning those championships uh, if you take him off that team they don't win no way no way phil jackson's unbelievable coach but they don't win scotty was scotty was a hybrid basketball player uh, and he was so far ahead of the game you know scotty would be tremendous today in the game he'd be unbelievable he, he'd be you know, uh, kind of like a Kevin Durant. He didn't shoot it as well as Kevin, obviously. But the same kind of player defensively, Scotty could defend. I mean, six seven, could defend anyone temporarily. I mean, he could defend in the post temporarily. Uh, was long, athletic, um, incredible mid-range game, shot a lot of bank shots, uh, incredible athlete. No, you take him off that team, they don't win. It doesn't happen. Take me through the the shot in in '89. Uh, Elo's playing out of his mind late, um, yeah. and what are your memories from those final couple minutes of that game? Yeah, it was a really hard fought game. Uh, you know, uh, both teams we gone back and forth in the series. Man, it was a great series, and I remember, you know, we're coming out of the timeout. We're trying to figure out the best way to push the offense as far off the floor or out on the floor as we possibly could. And we did that. You know, Lenny Wilkins had a great defensive scheme. And you're going to have Craig. Craig is a really good defender. Moved his feet very well. And, uh, you know, they got the ball inbounds. I never remember the guy. We had this one fan, Ed, who was a loudmouth guy, yelled the whole game. He's standing there, and he's got, like, pink pants on and a, some ridiculous shirt. And the ball is being taken out right beside him. And I can still hear him. He had this really loud voice. And the place was going nuts. And I could still hear him chirping as they're taking the ball out of bounds. 
and I'm standing near the, the basket. I'm probably, you know, three feet up the lane. Bill Cartwright's behind me. But I'm not really – they're not going to throw the ball to him, so I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned about it being a Hail Mary shot. In my mind, I was thinking hopefully Craig would maybe get his hand on it. And I was, I was thinking that it wouldn't make it to the basket if, it, if, if someone, which we knew it was going to be Michael, was going to get a shot off. And I wanted to make sure I was kind of a midfielder that could catch that ball that didn't quite make it to the basket so nobody could tip it. You know, I know it's crazy, but so I figured if he shot the ball, it's going to come off the backboard so hard anyway, I need to be midfield instead of being on baseline with Cartwright. So I'm watching the ball come in. You know, Michael's got it, dribbles, and you see him elevate. And I see Craig kind of running towards him. And I'm fine. You're fine with that shot. That's a, that's a, you know, yeah, I'll take that 10 out of 10 times. And I'm standing there, I watch the shot, and I'm looking at the ball, and I'm watching it, I'm watching it, and I, it just it pops the bottom of the net. And it just, that was it, game over, series over. So uh, he made that, and then he made, you know, there was another shot he made against us, which was backbreaking. But just to make that shot under those circumstances was remarkable. He made another one with Larry Nance, same thing, kind of just right there. And, uh, you know, it's just, you're, you're done. Uh, we did everything we could do to stop him and to make that kind of shot under those circumstances. This is what puts him in that rarefied air of being, you know, arguably the greatest to ever play. A lot of guys would not make that shot. Um, and he wanted to make it. He wanted the shot and he got it. And then we got to watch him do it time and time again uh, to seal his, his, his legacy. No doubt about it. Do you remember certain scenes from the locker room after that? I remember sitting there and I remember, it was an interview, guys. I just like I just I said I don't know what what you can do. We did everything we can do. Uh, I remember how quiet it was, and and because we had gotten so much better, and how gut wrenching it was that moment, because it was like there was nothing else you could do. You know, worst case scenario. You know, you make them throw the ball all the way down to the other end of the floor, but you can't do that because you only got five guys. And so the he made a shot in the most improbable under the most improbable circumstances. So you kind of live with that, but it still hurts because you know we wanted to get Cleveland to the finals, try to win a championship. That was our goal. And uh, you know, and then after that, it's just like he kept coming back year after year. You know, we would get better and get to the either the Eastern Conference Finals or semifinals, and uh, he would just, us and a lot of people, but just made it miserable for us. Was it ever an option for you, Brad, then to join the Bulls? These days, if when teams can't get over the hump, I mean, that your team back then was, you know, would be an exception these days. You know, losing yeah. the Bulls over and over again, and then guys team up together in order to achieve that ultimate goal. Was it an, ever an option for you to go somewhere else, Mark Price to go somewhere else, was everyone, anyone ever close to leaving? Did you ever consider no trying way. to join the Bulls? No. no, no, absolutely not. I wanted to beat him. I wanted to beat them. I wanted to beat, you know, the Bulls. Uh, as a matter of fact, he was one summer, and he may not remember us. We were talking. We were Chapel Hill playing basketball, and he's like, man. He's like, so, and, you know, back then we were making, not making what these guys make today, and, and uh, I was making a lot, and it was great, I thought. And he told me, he said, man, you're not making enough. I said, what do you mean? He's like, you carry that team 
He's like, you, you, you need to make more. He says, your contract's up in what another year. I said, yeah. He says, you know, you need to hold their feet to the fire. And uh, then he, I remember he said, you know, if they won't pay, he said, I bet you we pay it. And I was like, there ain't no way. I said, we're gonna kick your ass. I said, I don't care if they pay me peanuts. And he just started laughing. Uh-huh. And uh, but no, that was the only comment. But there's no way I wouldn't go play with Michael Jordan. I wasn't going to play with, you know, Isaiah Thomas. I'm not going to play with Patrick Ewing. I didn't, you know, that wasn't going to happen for me. The and and Charles Barkley and I talk about this. The super team that that would have been great is when I was drafted. If I'd have went to Philly. Okay, there was Moses was there, Charles was there, and I think Doc was at the end of his career. That would have been the team. That that would have been a hell of a team because mm-hmm. you. I see. I made the All Star team my in '88, and Mike Patello, I think, was the coach. Uh, my mind's getting bad, and so we were playing in practice that day. We were scrimmaging, and he put me, Moses, and Charles on the same team. And uh, against the other team, and we man, we killed the, the the other squad. And so in the game, he started me, Moses, and Charles second half. And they had let's see, it was Elijah Wan, I think Kareem, I can't I can't remember who else, James Worthy. Man, we absolutely kicked their ass. It was unbelievable. <laughs> and I remember Charles after the game because I I played. Moses, I could play some four because I could shoot it a little bit. And I, I passed the ball really well. Mm-hmm. So I could play four. And then you could post Moses. And I, but Moses could come to the, the, the top. of the, He loved to come to the free throw line against big guys and face them up. So then I could rotate to the, the block and post up. And so you need to ask Charles. By every time I see Charles, I played in a little golf event with Charles uh, a while back. Which I waxed him, by the way. He's horrible. Um, hey, why does he, he even do that to himself? It's just brutal. I, I don't know. It's, it's some type of, uh, it's some kind of. I don't know. It's it's self. I, I don't know. I don't know why he plays golf. But anyway, the we're standing there. It's awful. It's just absolutely awful. He, uh, we're talking. He's like, you know, and he always blames me. It's my fault. He's like, you know, you cost me three rings. I'm like, how how do you how did all this happen? Is this you know, how do you get this to being my fault? He's like, is that damn idiot Harold Katz didn't like you? I was like, well, <laughs> I, I think it's Harold Katz's fault. It's not my fault. And uh, but man, I'm, I, if we'd had that opportunity, because uh, you know Johnny Dawkins was there. I mean, it, it would have been. I don't know. I, I think it would have been a different story. I really do. Uh, because they'd been man, we'd have been a hell of a rebounding basketball team. Uh, they'd have had to double team both Moses and I, and then you had Charles, and I don't know, it would have been fun, but it didn't happen. And so I ended up uh, having to go after Michael myself a little bit with some guys, and boy, it was uh, it was it was difficult uh, difficult task. But man, I enjoyed every minute of it playing against How- him. Go ahead. I was just going to say, Brad, how frustrating is it for you? I mean, you just mentioned it, you talking with Charles about it, but just as an entire group, not just not winning the titles, but also now how history has treated this entire group of guys that because you guys went about it the right way, whether it was Reggie Miller staying in Indiana or you staying in Cleveland or, um, you know, obviously Charles bounced around a little bit. And those are just the guys in the East, never mind 
you know, Stockton and Malone out West. Yeah, like Dominique in Atlanta. Dominique. I mean, yeah. there's so many guys that didn't win titles during that era. Patrick Ewing in New York. Yeah. How frustrating is it for you to, again, not just not win the title, but now how history treats you guys? How how has that been for you? Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I, you know, when people talk about the, you know, the, the 80s and 90s, yeah, you know, I think that most people, uh, either if it's media people or any whatever type of medium, they recognize that, you know, we came into an era where the game had gone through such a bad period mm-hmm. uh, before you get into the 80s. And then, you know, you have Magic and Larry come along, and then there's an uptick, and the game's starting to get out of the, the doldrums of, of the bad reputation of the league. And now you've got this rivalry that's starting to shine a little spotlight on the game again. And then all of a sudden you're given this incredible uh, savior to the game and Michael uh, because of his athletic ability and his marketability and those types of things. So I think most people realize that the game was on an up, uptick and, and we were all loyal to the opportunity. Uh, and so it was about competition back in those days, uh, to the utmost. Um, there's a lot of great players that didn't win championships because, you know, teams were assembled uh, the, the way that you kind of think they would be assembled through the draft and through grooming players. And all of a sudden this team became this incredible entity and they would go on these runs like the Bulls or like, you know, the Pistons or the Lakers or the Celtics because of what they had. Now, you know, and I, I think a big part of it is, you know, um, a lot of these guys, first and foremost, because of, of, you know, like the Larry Bird rule and exception, those types of things, you're given the opportunity to move around and maximize your earning potential, maximize your championship winning potential. Uh, and if you don't win a championship in today's world and in today's media, you know, you've got guys who are sitting on TV calling guys scrubs who don't play. Um, and and so guys realize if they don't, if they're a really good player or great players or, you know, those types of players, if you don't win a championship, you know, your legacy is, you know, in today's market, you're, you're not, you're not, you know, you didn't get it done. So they've changed that. And you sit and listen to guys when Kevin Durant was OKC questioning whether or not he'll ever be able to win a championship and, you know, he and Russell Westbrook and they get it done. And when they lose, you know, he's got to listen to you lose because, you know, you're just not good enough or you're not tough enough or you're sensitive and all this stuff. And then he leaves and goes to Golden State and gets obliterated by some of the talking heads about doing this and what a a horrible move and a gutless move and he's this and he's that. And as soon as he wins that championship, he might be the greatest player ever. <laughs> well, hold on, hold on, hold on a second, Brad. I can't let you get yeah. off the hook here because sure. he should have. He should have. He was rightfully destroyed for going to Golden State because of yeah. not showing up in that series when they're when they're up three one, and then being recruited all season by Draymond Green and his teammates not letting him know that, and 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 him not telling his teammates that he was going and not being able to tell Russ face to face. He that sure. was it was it was a cowardly move. Okay. Why is that not still the conversation? We're we're talking about him now as being well. Now it's funny because the because the conversation now has turned. I think because he 
So we all, and, and Adam and I talk about this a lot. Sure. We all want, we all want to judge guys based on titles, but yet sure. we want all titles to be nearly impossible to win. So if you, so yeah. if you win a title easily, it's well, you know, they, you know, who else was going to beat them and, and they won the title easily. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's fair, but I think the narrative has changed and the feeling around KD right now has changed because he came back and played in the finals this past year, even though they lost. And I think, and it, it's, it's odd how getting hurt, coming back, how that changed the feelings about Kevin Durant. What do you, I, I, what do you mean? What, what did it change? That he, that he didn't it? just, that he didn't just pack it in. That he, that he tried to come back in the finals. But the whole narrative, the whole, the whole ideology behind the, the situation is he's, he's great but because he went and got that championship. That's all that matters in today's world. Same thing with LeBron. Same thing with LeBron. He didn't stay in Cleveland when he went to Miami. Everybody was all upset and mad. But as soon as he wins the championship, it, well, he could be the greatest ever. That's what these guys are dealing with today. It's because the, the, the narrative is so flimsy. It's not about the integrity of lasting through and being there and the going up against, you know, pressing against the, the diverse, the, the adversity right, that's trying to yeah. overcome that's that because the media, it's all the media. Hype. It's you are a scrub. If you don't win a championship, well, that's so absurd. These guys yeah. get on yeah, these super that, teams yeah, and they absurd. win championships. And now narrative's gone. They're the greatest. Right, that's, right. It's, 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 it's absurd. And then especially. How much in, yeah. So is. Brad, how much pressure did you, how much pressure during the time period did you feel then to find a way to win a championship, whether it was in Cleveland or even the thought of going elsewhere? Well, there, there, there's no pressure. Uh, that, that, the, the pressure is, is that whole pressure thing is, is, uh, is false. There, we, we all play because what you got to remember, like I say, every player that's playing, you're, you're, you're playing to the best of your ability. You know, so sometimes we talk about this pressure and we create these, like I say, these narratives for conversation that are just, that's all they are. Everybody's trying their darndest to win. And there's no pressure in that there's, because everyone's giving it their best. You look at a guy, I heard, a, I was listening to a, a, a talk show the other day and, I, you know, I'm working on a treadmill and I'm listening to the, the guy who's talking about the, this NBA team and he's talking about this particular player who has to uh, step up because you know, he's not doing a good enough job. Wait, name and names. Listening... Name names. Name names. Well, no, I don't. I don't, I don't... <laughs> I'm just giving the high. I'm just. But I, what I'm what I'm talking about is the the the, the whole thing is talking about the guy got having to step up. I'm watching the guy play. And the guy's playing to the best of his ability. That doesn't mean you know when you're saying step up because of you know that creates that creates that false sense of pressure. Because it becomes a conversation, the guy's doing everything he can to be the best player he can be. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not going to change. So the pressure becomes the talking of, about the thing, and the guy having to di discuss it and go through that. That becomes that's not pressure. That's aggravation. You know, because uh, we we talk about pressure on you know Tom Brady as quarterback, or pressure on you know LeBron James because he's not a great free throw shooter. You know that type. Of, can he make the free throw? Yeah, he can make them. You know, he can make them. But it's us talking about. He's not worried about that. Tom Brady's not worried about being 43 years old playing this year. He's going to go out and do his job because that's what he does. Well, that's the same thing for players who haven't won championships. They're going to go out and do the best they can because that's all they can do. 
you know, so oh, there's no, no pressure back there. No question. I guess my, I guess what I'm saying is though, obviously there's been, and you talked about it being aggravation, but obviously there's been a driving force right now for guys in the league feeling like, and, and obviously it is because of what, what the media talks about and what they're hearing when they're out in public and what the fans are saying and all and social media obviously yep. has played a role, but obviously these guys, have some type of motivation to move on from the teams that they're in to put themselves in a better chance to win a title when, especially when we know that spending time with a team and and building up that chemistry like you guys had in Cleveland and, and through the years, I mean, historically it's been proven that if you spend time with a team and build up that chemistry, you're actually going to have a better chance of breaking through. It's only been the last handful of years where that sort of, changed and teams can now just say well we're putting so much talent on one team we think we can win it now with a super team but but i guess my my question to you was at the time like what like were the were you feeling those motivations though of re, you know from the yeah. press and the questions you were getting internally family members asking you hey are you ever going to be able to beat michael jordan i'm wondering how much that felt and whether you ever really questioned like forget going to the bulls but you know what maybe i should work a trade to uh you know go play oh, out west no, or something no no never no the, the goal was to try to beat the bulls the goal was to try to beat new york and when the bulls became really good which was kind of you know later on in my career before i hurt my back really bad you know the goal was to beat them never thought about going to join them or going that made no that's absolutely crazy there's no way no i want to beat them i don't want to be a part of that that doesn't no i want right. to beat them right. and that's all that matters bunker mentality and these are my teammates and we're gonna figure out a way to do it come hell or high water that's what we were trying to do uh no, not didn't have one thought ever of going to play anywhere else with anyone else. wasn't going to do it. Didn't, didn't have, didn't even, wasn't even something to, didn't ruminate on it. Didn't have any thoughts on it. I was going to play for Cleveland as long as they wanted me to play there, and uh, try to beat that team. You know, if they beat us, then we'll show up next year and try to beat them again. Uh, and and Adam, joked, Adam joked before the podcast started that we were going to. Just if this ended up going into the night, um, then we would yeah. we, we would just yeah. continue. So, so a few a few a few more for you. Um, so because maybe he wasn't kidding when you you mentioned this first time you mentioned your your back. When did your back start to get bad, and how did you yeah. come to grips with this is going to be it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, I remember the, the the exact date. I can't remember, but I remember we were playing. The first time I hurt my back really bad, I was uh, – we were playing the Washington Bullets. And uh, I remember uh, Kevin Duckworth. They had just gotten Kevin Duckworth from Portland. And uh, we, we went out to play, and I was – my hamstrings were really, really tight. I just – and they'd been that way for a couple of weeks, just really weird. Couldn't get them to loosen up and um, just whatever. And I, you know, I was in the layup line and blah, blah, blah. So we go out the first – first quarter and uh you know Lenny always liked to give me the ball first to see if I could score put some pressure on the inside so he threw me the basketball and I, and I again I got off to a great great start I scored the first eight points of the game uh just really off to a great start and felt good and I came down and I remember Mark threw the ball to me I was on the post and Duckworth came behind me and he put his hand in my back and when he touched me I caught the ball I spun to my right 
to shoot like a little fadeaway jumper on the baseline. And when I did, Kevin, because he had his hand on me, he, he was leaning on me, he kind of stumbled into me as I shot it, and he kind of hit my hip and uh, fouled me. And I made the shot, but I felt something like pop in my back. And I was like, damn it, that felt weird. So I go to the free throw line, I'm standing there, and I'm you know waiting on, I think it's Ed Middleton to hand me the basketball, and I'm standing there. And he's talking to somebody, and they're, you know, my leg, my right leg's kind of burning. And I just, I was like, this is just odd. So I shoot the basketball, and uh, I go ahead, and I, I run down the court, and come out, and, and I'm sitting there on the bench. And as I sit there, and Lenny's talking, as I'm cooling off just a little bit, I start to get really stiff. My leg gets stiff. So I tell the trainer, I said, man, something's wrong with my leg. So we go in the back, and he's looking at it, and talking. And he says, hey, I think you, I said, I think you tweaked the, maybe touched your sciatic nerve or something. And, what now? He said, we're going to give you a cortisone shot. I said, okay, no problem. They give me a cortisone shot. I ended up feeling better. and I was fine. No big deal. And so we're playing a few nights later. We're playing uh, the Charlotte Hornets. And uh, I remember we, we played the first quarter of the game. Everything was okay. And, and I remember being a little stiff in my lower back, but no big deal. I come out, and at the end of the second quarter, Lenny would always take me out at the end of the second quarter going into the half because he wanted me to come start the third quarter and come out really strong. So I was sitting there, and as I sat there and watched the last three minutes, my legs went kind of numb, both of them. And it was kind of the point where I'd had tingling before, but the tingling kind of stopped. And so I told the trainer again, I said, man, something's going on with my leg. I can't uh, – they just feel dead. He said, huh. He said, okay. He said, well, come on back. He said, you don't, don't play the rest of the game. I don't want you to hurt yourself any further. Go back to Cleveland. Uh, take a few nights, same thing, kind of doing ice and therapy and all this stuff. And um, playing the Knicks the next night. And I remember like it was yesterday. So we're playing, and I'm up at the top of the key. I'm guarding Patrick, and John Stark's coming down the, the left baseline. And Mark Price steals the ball from me. And, <laughs> and I kind of grab Patrick because he's looking – you know, he's facing me looking at the basket, and I'm watching the play. So I kind of grabbed Patrick by his hip after I see Mark grab the ball, and I pulled him to me, kind of get a good pull off of him, kind of threw him behind me. Veteran move. Veteran move. Oh, yeah, man. I, I'm gone. So I took off, man. I am hauling the mail. And so Mark throws a bounce pass, and I'm in the open court, man. I'm going to tomahawk this thing, which I couldn't jump over a phone book, but I was going to do something spectacular. I don't know what it is. <laughs> And when he throws this bounce pass, Patrick's turning. He's running towards me, and Oakley's trying to catch me. And when he throws, when Mark throws the bounce pass, the ball didn't bounce. It skipped. I don't know if you've ever seen a basketball do that because it's yep. a long pass. Yep. And I reached out. It was pretty funny. It was like I was grabbing a tennis ball. I didn't think I was going to get it. I reached out to grab it, and I caught it with my fingertips. And I got the ball, and I'm really off balance, and I'm going to try to get this shot up. And Patrick gets right to me as I'm getting ready to shoot it. And he kind of pushes me to foul me. And I was almost under the basket, so I kind of bent backwards. And I felt that pop again. And when it, this time when it popped, it, it, it was like somebody had stuck hot pokers in the back of my hamstring. Finished playing. We ended up playing the game. Uh, I think I got thrown out of the game, as a matter of fact. Uh, Larry Nance and I both got thrown out of that game. Joey Crawford threw us out for laughing at him for making some stupid calls. But anyway. Threw us out for laughing. I'm sitting in the locker room back there, and the trainer comes back. He's like, how are you? I said, man, something's wrong. Something, I, 
I don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong. Then another week of cortisone. We were just stupid back in those days. Had no idea. Uh, another week of cortisone, trying to get it back. I, now, after this point, I hadn't had an MRI. I hadn't had anything. Because uh, we, we were really good, and I, I think that we were just trying to hope it would get better. This goes on for a couple of weeks. Finally, I have an X-ray of my back. Not, a, not an MRI. I have an X-ray. And the team doctor is looking at my X-ray. And I never forget, I'm sitting in a room with him, you know, looking at that little screen. I have no idea what I'm looking at. And I just know I'm sitting there, and I'm stiff as a board. I mean, I'm stiff. And he looks at me. And he, I remember he said, huh. I said, what's hump? He said, well, he said, I see some issues from L4, L5 down to S1 in your back. He says, we got to do an MRI. I said, okay. I didn't, I didn't, you know, so I go do the MRI. I finish up doing that. I come out, sitting there for about an hour. Doctor comes out. No one tells me anything. I have no idea what's going on, which, I, you know, I'm, I'm just waiting that I'm, somebody's going to tell me I'm going to get better. Uh, the team doc looks at me and says, we're going to go, we got to go to L.A. tomorrow. I said, all right. He said, we're going to go to the Curlin Joe Clinic. He said, there's Dr. Robert, I want you to go see Dr. Robert Watkins. I said, okay. All right, we're going to do this. So I go home, get all my stuff. I said, how long will we be there? He says, probably be there two days. We fly out to L.A. We go over to uh, the Curlin Joe Clinic, go in. I'm sitting there. Dr. Watkins comes out, meet him. Uh, great guy. We go in, he gets my MRI out, and he looks at it, and I never will forget this. He's like, oh, my goodness. He said, how long have you how long have you been dealing with this? I said, oh, probably about three weeks now. I've been trying to play. He said, you've been trying to play. I said, yeah. He said, Brad, he said, you've ruptured L4, L5. You've broken your S1. He said, you've fractured. Uh, some of the disc fragment, and you've got it all up and down your back and your, near your spinal tract. I said, really? He was, and I'm going to tell you, he was livid. He said, you've been trying to play? I said, yeah. I said, I, I don't, I said, I have no idea. I know nothing about the spine or I'm just doing as I, he was, he was livid. He said, I don't know. I'm going to send you to UCLA or a guy named Rick Delamarter. You need to have surgery immediately on this because these little bones you got to get this out of your back your back you could have you could sneeze and have a serious problem i'm like okay so we go over to ucla and long story short i end up talking to this guy rick delamarter and he's like look he's like there's one guy i know that i would trust to do this surgery you don't want to i i don't want to do this at this this point in time uh there's actually a guy at university hospital in cleveland named henry bowman he said you need to contact this guy and uh, talk to him. So I get back. We get back. We talk to Henry Bowman. I call Henry Bowman. Uh, Brad Darty, Cavaliers. Yeah, 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 yeah. He said, actually, he said, your wife called me uh, a month ago. I said, really? He said, when you first hurt your back, your wife reached out to me because she saw how much pain you were in at home and trying to play and do all this stuff. And said, she actually talked to me and was, was trying to get you to come in and see me, but you kept blowing it off because you were, you know, Cavs guy and we were at the Cleveland Clinic and all that. So I said, so I'm, it's ironic you're calling me at this point in time. And uh, it was funny because he was a real cocky guy. I said, yeah. I said, I was out, went to saw Dr. Watkins and Rick Delamater. And, and so, you know, they think I need to have surgery. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, they told you to call me because I'm the best in the business. <laughs> I said, yeah. That's what they told me, Doc. He said, well, he said, uh, I've looked at uh, all your stuff. 
Uh, I've got all your x-rays. He said, uh, I've got to fly. He says, the Prince of Sinai is sending his 747 over to pick me up tomorrow. He said, I'm doing surgery on him Thursday. He said, I'll be back Saturday. He said, uh, we're going to do your surgery Monday. And uh, he said, uh, be about three hours. And he said, in six weeks, you'll be back on the basketball court. You'll be better than ever. I said, oh, man, this sounds awesome. So we get in there Monday. He comes in. Uh, I mean, just had this, like, really funky handlebar mustache. Typical, you know, neurosurgeon, really, really full of himself. And uh, we start talking. Said, yeah, three hours, 25 minutes. He said, uh, you're going to wake up feeling great. And he said, uh, we're going to get you back in playing basketball. I said, okay, Doc. So I'm laying there, and uh, I got to do the anesthesia. And I wake up, and I'm all groggy and stuff. And, I'm, you know, I'm in this little area. And come to, my wife's there, and she's standing there looking at me. And I said, man, I said, you know, how did everything go? I said, and she says, how do you feel? I said, well, I, you know, I feel, feel like crap, but I feel okay. I said, how did everything go? She said, your surgery took almost seven hours. Whew. I said, wow. And so about five minutes later, he comes walking in the room, and he said, your basketball career is over. Uh, he said, man, he said, I just I had no idea uh, the amount of fragment you had ground up uh, in your spinal tract. He said, you're going to be better. He said, but you're not going to play basketball again. And um, Dr. Watkins, I went back to him. He said, yeah, you're, you're, you're not going to play basketball uh, again. You're done today. I was like, wow. So – that was it, and uh, you know, I even even with that final summation, I still tried to rehab because <clears throat> I wanted to play. And what I found was, I got back to where I was in pretty good shape physically, but I was man, I was like, I like I'd see a ball, I'd be like a half a step, I couldn't quite get to it, or my reflex was just a half a second off. It was weird, and so that was that was it. That was all she wrote. Didn't play another. Didn't play another game. How'd you handle that emotionally? You know, it was it was difficult because I, you know, I was 28 years old. Uh, I was I was in the prime of my career. <clears throat> Excuse me, my voice is cracking up. <clears throat> and uh, I was really coming into my own as a player. I mean, I was a, I was averaging 20 and 10 a night. Uh, you know, you look at my stats against all the look at my stats against the centers of the the 80s of that era. And they're as good as any of them. Uh, on any given night, whether I was playing against Patrick or, you know, Akeem or David Robinson, I could dominate on any given night. And same with them. We go. I mean, it, it was, it was give or take. There's a lot of nights I, I, I played better than those guys. Uh, and so, I felt, you know, coming into at 28, you know, I was I was finally a full grown guy, uh, coming into my own. Uh, game-wise, knowledge, that type of thing. I thought that I could have been – I thought I could have been the best center in the league uh, at the time, and uh, which, was, which was saying a lot because that was the era of great centers. Um, so uh, it was difficult. It was really hard, and I didn't know – you know, I had other – you know, I was involved in different businesses and had business things that I could always turn to, and I did, and got into some of those things and went full-time, but – it was it was it was heartbreaking because I loved to play basketball, and I loved the game of basketball, and it had given me so much in my life, from a, a great college education to an incredible mentor to coming into 
pro basketball, which obviously financially changed my life, uh, to being a part of an organization that had come from the doldrums of of, of pro basketball, kind of up into the the spotlight of being having a chance. So even though Michael had ruined our our year a lot of years, there was a lot going on that was just spectacular and and good and positive. And uh, to have that taken away uh, was was heartbreaking. I mean, it was gut wrenching. And so. To know I wasn't going to play basketball again kind of was was difficult because now you're trying to figure out what do you do? You know, as a pro athlete, uh, especially if you spend six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, 12 years, 20 years, there's an identity that comes with that. So now your identity is kind of taken away. Um, and so you have to be able to uh, go on and start that second phase of life and realize that you know, your identity, even though we all say, you know, we're just basketball players and we do that. And once we quit that, you walk away from it, you're done with it. Even as, as you get to be an old man, you're still, you're still, your identity still is a, as a basketball player. And so as I watch Dwayne Wade retire and these these, these guys retire, I, it, it, there's going to be an interesting change. And I'm watching it like with Carmelo Anthony trying to find his way back into the game of basketball right now, which I hope he does because I think he can still play. But losing that is very, very difficult. And that's for every pro athlete in every sport. Uh, even if you're financially secure and you have other outlets in life, which I did for me, I mean, I ended up working for ESPN for almost 13, 14 years doing basketball. I've been in the, the racing business for a number of years. I own a couple of different companies. I was in the car business for 25 years. Still, you're still identified as a basketball player. And, and so to have that taken away at that point in time, uh, in 94 was very, very difficult. Uh, but you, you, you go on and you figure it out. And uh, some guys are have success in doing that. Some don't. And uh, you understand why. Can I ask you one on NASCAR? Yeah, absolutely. The, so it's JTG Dirty Racing. It's, it's the NASCAR yep. team. So what is, as an owner of a NASCAR team, what is race day like for you? You know, it's 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 uh, incredibly hectic because what we do, what we specialize in, in the business of NASCAR, what what my partners and I do, we we own a marketing company, okay, and we specialize in small package consumer goods, and so uh, the, the 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 whole ideology behind our business is we use NASCAR as a business platform because of the uh, the appeal across the board, across the board, and so Kroger is our primary sponsor, and and. What we have to do the day of a race is it's uh, all about entertaining and and taking about – you have about 100 to 150 people um, who are business clients, who are partners of Kroger through their branding. All of our brand partners come in the day of a race, and we spend the entire morning uh, with those folks in meetings and uh, in, in, in entertaining those people and uh, feeding those people. Uh, it's that every weekend. And then, you know, our race team, uh, are, they're doing their debriefings. We have engineering meetings. Uh, we have driver meetings. And then we meet with NASCAR the same day. And then you go race. So uh, starting at 5 o'clock in the morning, right up until about 30 minutes before the race when they sing the national anthem, as an owner in that business, you are working. And a lot of times we're doing deals with different businesses clients. We do a lot of B2B stuff in NASCAR because 
you have a lot of Fortune 100 companies in the business. And so you get a lot done the day of a race, just like a lot of guys get stuff done on the golf course in business meetings. So sometimes we may be sitting there talking to Roger Penske about doing a business deal with him and his, whether it's, you know, one of his 10,000 businesses, whether it's you know, domestically or internationally, and trying to get that put together so the following week we can get it documented and implement it. So it's it's pretty hectic and it's pretty involved, and uh, but it's a lot of fun. But once the green flag falls, man, it's all about racing and uh, uh, a lot of fun, a lot of fun, a lot of hard work, a lot of fun. And you're still doing a serious show, right, on Sirius Radio, on NASCAR Radio? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Every Monday night we do the uh, the, the serious NASCAR uh, radio, radio show. Uh, we're on 7 to 10 Eastern time. Uh, my partner Brad Gilly and I, and it's a blast, man, because I'm telling you, there's some – there's some, we get a lot of truck drivers that call in that are driving across country, and uh, it, it's it's hilarious. Uh, some of these people just aren't right, and uh, we have a lot of fun, a lot of conversation. Uh, we have great guests come on our show. We go back and forth, and uh, it, it's a good outlet. I enjoy it. I enjoy talking to people and talking NASCAR, talking racing. Love talking basketball. So uh, I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to come on uh, on your podcast. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, well, we love having you this has been an awesome discussion and uh before we let you go we are the catch and shoot podcast so we always like to end the interviews by by asking game seven catch and shoot situation your life on the line who do you want taking that shot not and michael where, jordan. not michael well, jordan not, not michael, michael jordan, jordan. Woo, where's the shot where's the ball at? is it is it in, are we inbounding or do we have it somewhere hey, on you, the floor uh wow no one's ever asked us that before let's uh let's say you know eight seconds left and uh your ball in inbounding uh you're running some slob sideline out of bounds sideline out of bounds uh in today's game or in the game in the 80s hey all time you get to pick all time whatever guy you want all time and it can't be michael jordan okay if it can't be michael jordan i'm throwing the ball to kareem That'll work. I'm throwing the yeah. ball to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, uh, 38,387 points, that works. And it's unbelievable he's not talked about as the greatest of all time. Another thing that shows you how media-driven and how, how skewed that whole conversation is. Because you're taking guys who are ball handlers and automatically saying they're the best that's ever played. That's, and this guy is the most efficient player in the history of the game. But no one ever talks about him being the best ever. It just boggles my mind. Well, Brad, we really appreciate it. We appreciate it all the yep. time. We enjoyed we enjoyed listening to all the stories. Your recall is phenomenal. My wife and, doesn't agree with that, by the way. So. <laughs> oh well, well, she's she's asking you more significant questions than we. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As long as yeah. you remember your anniversary, I think you'll be okay. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's no selective memory with uh, with us. Just just your wife. Uh, we we appreciate it, and uh, good luck on the track. All right, thank you so much. I appreciate it. No, I just have to say, I was floored by how much I heard from Brad Doherty that I had never heard before usually when we're preparing for these interviews it feels like uh it's a lot of stuff that i might have heard or i read about in this interview there were so many stories that i had no idea yeah and that's what i really like speaking with i mean brad darty is an all nba guy one of the really good centers from the era and in, in, in an era that was defined by centers a five was on his way to becoming a hall of famer absolutely and and got shut down in his prime with the, with the back injury and 
So I like speaking to these guys that aren't speaking all the time and that aren't always the most coveted interviews. And because I, I really do believe that everybody has stories. And Brad Doherty, look, you said, and we even joked about it, that we might end up going into the night during this interview. And right <laughs> now, and right now it's 11 o'clock on 11 o'clock PM on, on, on the East coast. And we started this at uh, 1130 this morning. We, we took breaks, we had intermission, we ate all that. And so his stories from Michael Jordan, Dean Smith, and then there are still, there's so many follow-ups that you want to get to, but in the course of an answer, when he takes it in different directions, then that's when you have to really curtail what your next questions are going to be or what your comments are going to be just to make sure that all that stuff gets out. He was, he was terrific. Yeah. We're really appreciative of, of his time and, and the guests that we've had in the past too. No, I mean, you think about people really should go back and listen. If they enjoyed this interview, Larry Brown, George Carl, Avery Johnson, Alex English, Rick Barry. I mean, so many people that we've been lucky enough to, to talk to about things that, that you have not heard before. I can promise you that because a lot of times I don't think these guys have talked about a lot of this stuff publicly. No, and right now, though, I got to run because my daughter, uh, Eden, is uh, has been standing outside um, outside the door here for for the past 10 and a half hours. And uh, and I think she's hungry. I think I <laughs> I gotta go. I gotta Maybe. go. And, Mar- and Marissa's away, and I gotta go feed her now. So I gotta, I gotta, I gotta make sure she eats. You have to do what you have to do. No, just uh, of course we'll thank everyone. But podcast to remind people: Pure Hoops podcast, Eric Newman, BJ Armstrong, uh, Buckets, Words, and Blocks by Monica McNutt, and of course the Mike Wise Show. Check out all the podcasts and 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 listen, subscribe, share. This is the big one, though, of course. Produced by Bruce Bernstein, uh, Scott Turkin, and edited by Ben Wolf. And this is the one people need to make sure they're subscribing to and sharing. Right, right, Noah? Yeah, obviously. What kind of question is that? You ask all these good questions to Brad Darty. What, what kind of question is that? You're asking me. I ran out of bullets. Yeah. All right, man. Have a good week. You too. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. 